Hi everyone, um, I'm Caitlin. I'm going to be reading the Bible reading from Ecclesiastes, starting in chapter 7 today. It's in your hand. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It is better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting. For death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. It is better to heed the rebuke of a wise person than to listen to the song of fools. Like the crackling of thorns under the pot, so is the laughter of fools. This too is meaningless. Extortion turns a wise person into a fool, and a bribe corrupts the heart. The end of a matter is better than its beginning, and patience is better than pride. Do not be quickly provoked in your spirit, for anger resides in the lap of fools. Do not say, why were the old days better than these? For it is not wise to ask such questions. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this, wisdom preserves those who have it. Consider what God has done. Who can straighten what he has made crooked? When times are good, be happy. But when times are bad, consider this. God has made the one uh, as well as the other. Therefore, no one can discover anything about their future. In this meaningless life of mine, I have seen both of these, the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Do not be over-wicked and do not be a fool. Why die before your time? It is good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. Wisdom makes one wise person more powerful than two rulers in a city. Indeed, there is no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. Not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The words of the wise... Hang on, sorry. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. The words of the wise are like goads. They collected sayings like firmly embedded nails, given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books there is no end, and much study wearies the body. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Thanks, Caitlin. Well, when you think about it, the uh, motto of the University of Western Australia, Seek Wisdom, uh, is a fairly surprising motto to have. I mean, UWA could have gone with uh, make a profit or uh, get a job. They might have been more honest. But the motto is seek wisdom. Uh, It's not win victory. It's not win gold medals or national glory. It's not even seek unity. No, the motto of UWA is seek wisdom. Uh, And there's probably some good reasons for that. So, at one level, it's a brilliant choice for a university because seek wisdom was one of the maxims inscribed on the Temple of Apollo uh, at uh, Delphi, the ancient Greek temple. 
Uh, But it's also something that the Bible urges us to do. So Proverbs chapter 4, verse 7 says, The beginning of wisdom is this, get wisdom. Though it costs all you have, get understanding. And so in that way, seek wisdom kind of brings together both the kind of Greco-Roman and the Judeo-Christian strands of Western culture. It's a clever motto. And UWA would like you to believe that you can find wisdom here. And to some extent, that is true, isn't it? At UWA, you can learn wisdom when it comes to building bridges or motors. You can learn wisdom in coding, wisdom in analysing texts or running experiments or running businesses. But most of the wisdom that we learn at uni, especially these days, is really just the kind of specialised technical knowledge. It may equip you to do certain aspects of a job that you'd like to have in the future. But does university really make you wise? I seek wisdom is a noble motto, but it's also not very helpful, is it? It tells us that wisdom is valuable, that it's worth seeking, and that it requires some effort, presumably, to seek it out. But it kind of leaves all the critical questions unanswered. Why is wisdom valuable? Are there any limits on its value? What does a wise life look like? And how can I find wisdom anyway? It seems to me that UWA is not particularly interested in the answers to those questions. Uh, But God is, and he answers them in part through the teacher of Ecclesiastes. So if we take the last question first, how can I find wisdom? Well, the teacher tells us, He says, easy, go to funerals. Here it is in chapter 7, verses 1 to 4. A good name is better than fine perfume, and the day of death better than the day of birth. It's better to go to a house of mourning than to go to a house of feasting, for death is the destiny of everyone. The living should take this to heart. Frustration is better than laughter, Because a sad face is good for the heart. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of pleasure. See, everyone wants to go to parties, don't they? The feasting, the laughter, good times. Uh, And parties are great fun. The teacher's not opposed to parties per se. But he does realise that parties can be kind of delusional, can't they? Rather than engaging with reality, they can become a way of avoiding it. You get a bunch of people together, you crank up the music, you bring in the food, particularly if you bring in the alcohol, well, then suddenly everyone feels clever and attractive. And you can sit around blabbering nonsense with your friends, you can sing stupid songs and you can laugh at stuff that's not really funny, and you forget that you're all going to (laughs) die. And you can just kind of bumble your way through life doing that kind of stuff. Just having parties. The teacher says, yeah, you can do that. But it's not wise. You'd be better off going to a funeral. Because it's better to face reality than to suppress it. Because the party doesn't go on forever. Sooner or later, death walks in and turns the lights out. In the end, you wake up with a hangover. A hell of a hangover. 
And distracting yourself from death instead of allowing its reality to drive you towards God as the one who holds life and death in his hands. Well, the teacher says, that's not wise. No, better to go to funerals than to go to parties. But on the other hand, the very reality of death might make you question the value of wisdom. Does wisdom really have any value at all? After all, like the teacher said back in chapter 2, the wise, like the fool, will not be long remembered. The days have already come when both have been forgotten. Like the fool, the wise too must die. And yet the teacher tells us that wisdom does actually have some value. For two reasons. Firstly, wisdom is valuable because it helps us in living life. You can see it there on your handout, chapter 7, verse 11. Wisdom, like an inheritance, is a good thing and benefits those who see the sun. Wisdom is a shelter, as money is a shelter. But the advantage of knowledge is this. Wisdom preserves those who have it. Or in chapter 8, verse 1, he says, Who is like the wise? Who knows the explanation of things? A person's wisdom brightens their face and changes its hard appearance. Chapter 10, verse 10. If the axe is dull and its edge unsharpened, more strength is needed, but skill will bring success. If a snake bites before it's charmed, the charmer receives no fee. Words from the mouth of the wise are gracious, but fools are consumed by their own lips. You hear what he's saying? Like wisdom's going to help you live life going to help you to live life well. If your axe is dull, you can just sit there hacking at the tree, but you could be wise and pause and sharpen it, and then you'll be able to cut it down. Wisdom is valuable. It helps us to enjoy the good gifts that God gives us. That's the first reason. The second reason that wisdom is valuable is because it can help us come to the same realisation about life and death that the teacher has come to. He says in chapter 9, So I reflected on all this and concluded that the righteous and the wise and what they do are in God's hands. But no one knows whether love or hate awaits them. All share a common destiny. The righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. As it is with the good, so with the sinful. As it is with those who take oaths, so with those who are afraid to take them. This is the evil in everything that happens under the sun. The same destiny overtakes all. The hearts of people, moreover, are full of evil, and there's madness in their hearts while they live, and afterward they join the dead. Anyone who's among the living has hope. Even a live dog is better off than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing. They have no further reward, and even their name is forgotten. Their love, their hate and their jealousy have long since vanished. Never again will they have a part in anything that happens under the sun. See, wisdom allows you to see that death is coming. If you're wise enough to go to the funeral, to pay attention to what's coming up, you know that death is coming. That it'll strip you of everything that you have. And that'll happen whether you're... Righteous or wicked, good or bad. 
the thing the teacher's been telling us throughout Ecclesiastes is that, is that this is a deliberate strategy of God to drive us towards him, to push us away from living for things that we can't keep because we know that death will take them off us, to push us towards God as the one that life is about. And that when we do that, everything else kind of falls into place. Wisdom can push us towards contentment with God instead of striving for stuff that we can't keep. So wisdom is valuable, but it does have limits. For one thing, he says, no matter how hard you try, wisdom will never allow you to fully crack open what God is doing. When I applied my mind to know wisdom and to observe the labour that's done on earth, people getting no sleep day or night, there you are, some of you are in week seven, you're pulling all-nighters, you know what that's like, then I saw all that God has done. No one can comprehend what goes on under the sun. Despite all their efforts to search it out, no one can discover its meaning. Even if the wise claim they know, they cannot really comprehend it. Their life is just complicated. It's very complicated. Cause and effect are not straightforward. Even with great wisdom, you'll fail to untangle everything that God is doing in the world. And remember as well the big question that the teacher asked back in chapter 1. What profit do people have from all their labours at which they toil under the sun? Well, he says wisdom will help you in the toil. Wisdom is valuable for those who see the sun. But it's useless for the dead. So don't fall into the trap of busting your gut to be wise in the hope that it will let you take some profit out of life. It won't. The wise and the fool both die. I also saw under the sun this example of wisdom that greatly impressed me. There was once a small city with only a few people in it, and a powerful king came against it, surrounded it, and built huge siege works against it. Now there lived in that city a man poor but wise, And he saved the city by his wisdom. But nobody remembered that poor man. So I said, wisdom is better than strength. But the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are no longer heeded. See, wisdom is great. It's brilliant. It'll let you rescue poor little cities from huge armies, even when you have very few people. Wisdom is great in life. But even then, it won't help you totally master it. And it certainly won't help you avoid death. You might be very wise, like the poor man in this story. But in the end, you'll still die and you'll be forgotten. Wisdom's of relative value. But if you treat it like it's of ultimate value, well, then it won't work. In fact, it'll do the opposite. Not only will wisdom not help you, it'll ruin your life. So have a look with me at Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 15. Ecclesiastes 7, 15. In this vaporous life of mine, I've seen both of these. 
the righteous perishing in their righteousness and the wicked living long in their wickedness. Do not be over-righteous, neither be over-wise. Why destroy yourself? Don't be over-wicked and don't be a fool. Why die before your time? It's good to grasp the one and not let go of the other. Whoever fears God will avoid all extremes. At first glance, that sounds really wrong, doesn't it? I mean, don't be over-righteous. Don't be over-wise. Can you actually ever be too righteous? Can you ever be too wise? I think the answer is yes, if you understand the teacher rightly. If you think that if, if only I can reach this level of righteousness and wisdom, then, then I'll be able to master life. Maybe I'll even be able to force God to bless me. He'll be under some kind of obligation to me because I've been so good. But the teacher recognises that if that's your approach to life, at least three things are going to happen to you. First, you're probably going to fail because God has made life unpredictable. Sometimes the righteous perish in their righteousness and the wicked live long in their wickedness. It shouldn't be that way. But moral cause and effect are not straightforward. You can't use righteousness or, wickedness or wisdom to force life to go well. You can't use them to twist God's arm and force him to do what you want. That's the first problem. Secondly, you'll probably destroy yourself. If your life and your sense of self depends on never falling short intellectually or morally, then you are stuffed. <laughs> That's the te- uh, you can't... You can't get 100% in all your units. You can't care for every homeless person in Perth, let alone every homeless person in the world. As the teacher says a couple of verses later, there's no one on earth who is righteous, no one who does what is right and never sins. If your life depends on you being sinless or supremely wise, then you'll fail and you'll end up exhausted, resentful and bitter. They're the first two problems. You'll probably fail and it'll ruin your life. And last of all, worst of all, you won't actually fear God. Instead, you'll think that you can make God owe you. That you can sort of back him into a corner because, look God, I've been so wise and I've been so righteous, you owe me. You have to give me what I want, which is not you, but something else. Uh, trying for that kind of wisdom, that kind of righteousness, well, it doesn't lead you to fear God. So the teacher isn't actually encouraging a middle way between righteousness and wickedness. He's encouraging a third way, which is entirely different. A way of genuine righteousness that recognises our sin and fears God. In contrast to both outright wickedness, which is madness, and self-righteousness, which are destructive and dishonouring to God. In fact, if you stop and think about it, the teacher's pointing us towards a life that's ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. Jesus calls us away from a life of wickedness. But he doesn't call us to flogging our guts out 
in the hope that we can somehow impress God, that we can somehow persuade him to bless us. No, instead he calls on us to trust him and his death in our place, to pay for our sin, to trust that to make us righteous before God. So Jesus says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. That's actually the direction that the teacher is heading in that we only see come to fulfilment in Jesus, that in Jesus we come under his yoke, under new management, neither wandering off into wickedness nor pulling away into self-righteousness. Instead, we're willingly submitting to him out of gratitude and joy for who he is and what he's done for us. Still sinners, but not over-wicked. Righteous, but not self-righteous. A righteousness that honours God rather than despising him or honouring ourselves. That's true righteousness. That's true wisdom. Seek that, says the teacher. Seek that wisdom. Well, let's try and sum up what we've seen in Ecclesiastes over the last four weeks and then we'll look at some application. Back in chapter 1, the teacher started off by declaring that everything is vapour. And he finishes with the same words in chapter 12, verse 8. You can see them there. Vapour, vapour. That's literally what the word translated meaningless here means. Vapour. Everything is vapour. But if the vaporousness of life, the way death causes everything to slip through our fingers, if that initially caused the teacher to despair... By the end of the book, it kind of causes him, I don't know if the word is right to say that he rejoices, but he's realised that it pushes us to remember our creator, to fear God and live for him instead of living for the things that we can't keep. Yeah, death is a curse. It's not something to be delighted in. But it is a mercy if it drives us to God instead of living forever in rebellion against him. In fact, I think that's kind of the whole point of Ecclesiastes, is to help us see that. So if you look at the epilogue there, in chapter 12, verses 9 to 14, the epilogue declares that the teacher was wise and he imparted knowledge to the people. He wrote what is upright and true. His words weren't always pleasant, but they worked like goads, like cattle prods. Uncomfortable, perhaps. Unpleasant. But directing us along the true path. And what is that path? Well, verse 13. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it's good or evil. Fear God and keep his commandments. That's what life's about. And if you do that, then everything else kind of falls into place. Not that life will be easy. The teacher is not selling some kind of prosperity gospel where if I, if I just come to God, then 
he'll make my life fantastic and I'll be healthy and wealthy and wise. No, it's actually the opposite of a prosperity gospel. It's love God and you are rich because you know what life is about. You know the one who life is about. And when you know him, well, you can relax. You can cease the frantic activity of trying to accumulate stuff that you can't keep. You can just relax and enjoy the good gifts that he gives. I don't want to end the series on Ecclesiastes there. I want to point us in a couple of directions that I think Ecclesiastes implies, but it doesn't really flesh out. Because I think the direction that Ecclesiastes is heading in is really only fulfilled in Jesus. What we see as a seed in Ecclesiastes only reaches full bloom in Christ. So as I hinted at earlier, it's only in Jesus that the problem of sin and death is ultimately dealt with. Ecclesiastes assumes that there's a possibility of forgiveness and life with God beyond the grave, but it doesn't really develop that idea because it's not a major concern at that point for him. Because even if you go to be with God when you die, you still can't take your stuff with you. That's true in Jesus too. If you trust in Jesus, it doesn't mean you get to take your BMW with you when you go or your achievements, or anything else. But in Jesus we do know that death has been defeated. That he's destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through his own death and resurrection. That he took the punishment we deserve by his death on the cross. So that the sentence of death no longer hangs over us. It's already been paid for. And by rising to life again, not as a a ghost or something, but as a real physical human, he's shown us that there really is life after death. Better than that, there's life after life after death. Not a disembodied spirit, but a physically raised human being. Jesus has won that for us. He's won what Ecclesiastes can only hint at. And that brings us to the second implication of Ecclesiastes. The teacher has been hammering all the way through Ecclesiastes that you can't take stuff with you when you die. And that's absolutely true. Except there is one thing, isn't there? There is one thing that we can get past the death barrier. Because if we can get past the death barrier, well, so can other people. The teacher never really spells out the implications of that. But whatever else we might work for, money, house, car, prestige, death is going to take it off us. It's all vapour. But if we tell others the gospel and they believe, then Jesus grabs hold of them and he drags them out of death and into eternal life with him. People can get past the death barrier. So that raises the question of, well, what is worth working for? And the answer's got to be the salvation of others, isn't it? That they would come to fear God, that they would take Jesus' yoke upon them, that they would find rest for their souls in the life that Jesus has won for them. 
In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul exclaims, uh, after talking about uh, Jesus and his victory and his return, he says, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. And then in the very next verse, he urges them, Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labour in the Lord is not in vain. All other labour is ultimately going to come to nothing. You don't get to take the bridge that you built with you or the code that you wrote or the poem. No, but you could get to take people. Now, Paul's not saying that everyone needs to become a pastor or a staff worker, and neither am I. But it does show us what matters, doesn't it, ultimately? It's not your grades. It's not your job. It's not your income or your house or your car. It's not promotions and prestige. It's people. It's your fellow students, it's your work colleagues, it's your friends, your family, it's the strangers on the bus, it's people everywhere. What matters is actually them coming to know God, to fear God, the one who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through his son Jesus. Seek wisdom, says UWA. The teacher agrees. But he raises the question for us. Will you embrace true wisdom by letting go of the stuff that you cannot keep to help others grab hold of Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please help us to understand ourselves and you and life and death rightly in the light of Jesus. And we ask it for his sake and for the sake of those around us. Amen.